0: I'm fearful that too many banks are putting digital first and not strategy first.
1: Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves.
2: This is how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Podcast. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by Bank Tech Ventures the first strategic investment fund designed by the community banking industry for community bank innovation and investment. BankTech identifies leading products and technologies for community banks and works with the founders and management teams to maximize the impact for their community banks and businesses. If you're a bank looking to innovate and invest in the future or a founder who wants to work with community banks, reach out to BankTech Ventures at BankTechVentures.com. I'm super excited. Excited to have my newer friend, Ron Shevlin, with me today. We've had such a pleasure, I have at least, I hope he has as well, uh, to just have multiple conversations in a number of different places over the past year. And we invariably get into the the state of community banking and innovation and opportunities ahead. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about that today. Uh, And Ron is truly a fintech and banking expert. He's been covering financial services for most of his career. Um, He's currently, as many of you know, managing director and chief research officer at Cornerstone Advisors. Uh, He also is a frequent contributor, senior contributor even, at Forbes uh, and always has great articles. He is often asked to weigh in on industry issues. Uh, I've seen him present a few times. His presentation earlier this year at a new conference in Little Rock called Vincent was absolutely fantastic. And he described there the more digital collaborative future of banking that we all uh, expect and really outlined what that's likely to look like. And he's always good for some humor as well. And I'm sure we'll get some of that today. Ron, thank you for joining me on the podcast today.
0: Gary, great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me.
2: Absolutely. Well, let's start off. Um, there's there's this term financial products that I think we all sort of have a, a general sense of. Um, in your mind, what defines a financial product in your mind today?
0: I got to tell you, Carrie, I, uh, I'm not a fan of the term financial product. Mm. At some point, maybe 10, 20 years ago, that I mean, it came into fashion, mm-hmm. so maybe even longer than that. I'm not even sure. But I, I don't like the connotation of the word product. Product tends to have this thingy feel to it, thingy connotation, something mm-hmm. you can hold, touch, feel. It's a product. Um, and I guess, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you could hold your checkbook and yep. write a check, and it maybe lent to the idea of a product. But uh, I mean, today, obviously, when we're writing a lot less checks, but I think even more importantly, I think the term service, financial service or financial services really needs to replace the term financial product Hmm. because of the connotation. To me, a service is something that delivers value, um, has a more intangible connotation to it. And I think today's financial products or services really are kind of intangible in mm-hmm. that we don't touch and feel them. But there's a sense of, I think what the real difference for me is, uh, you know, from 20, 30 years ago, it's not just the touching feeling aspect of it, but that it was a financial product. It was something that stood alone. It was a product singular
1: mm-hmm.
0: where today, what we really want is something more connected. We want something, we want a checking account that's connected to the tools and the, we wanna connect our our checking account to Venmo. We wanna connect our checking account to to various tools that we use to help us manage or analyze our financial lives. So there's this connotation of connectivity that I think doesn't come through when you use the term product. Um, And I think that banks that start to move away from the term product to service start to inculcate that kind of culture around connectivity and service and value delivery and away from, gee, we have a product that we need to push um, at at customers.
2: Where where my head starts to go is, if you think about software, software has largely moved from the early days where software was product. It was getting shipped on a floppy disk or CD-ROMs. And now increasingly, even software is talked about in much more of a services. You have services architecture, where you have APIs that are actually a number of, of services. And it seems like what you're almost intimating is that we want these various interconnected financial services that work better together. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I also think there's the, the idea of um, value delivery versus a product and you look at the product and you admire oh it has this feature or function Mm -hmm. you know does this it does that um or has this or has that and the 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 focus should be more on it does this and it does that and it provides that benefit so i I mean i don't i don't know that this is going to change anybody's world view on that but I do think, stop thinking about this as a product, much as, as, as I would tell Wells Fargo, quit talking about your branches as stores to sell things and buy mm-hmm. things. And while branch might not be the best term either, you know, locations that uh, deliver value, provide service. I mean, That's what customers want more so than buying something you know, at a store.
2: Sure. Yeah I I mean this term money store I I think is is a moniker that I've sort of used somewhat recently somewhat to point out the irrelevance of that idea I mean younger generations you know our kids as an example are certainly not going to get off the couch to go to a money store it just doesn't make any sense to them they They can do all that they need. I mean, money for sure, but they can do most of the other shopping they need to do without getting off the couch. So why in the world would they go to a place where they don't have a tangible good there?
0: Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. The only reason that they'd go there is because they can't get done what they want to get done anyway
2: else. It's the
0: last resort.
2: And that's not a good place to be building a future business.
0: Absolutely not.
2: So you you talked a long time ago, Ron. You know, as I, I was looking at some of your your prior work about this whole atomization of financial services. I mean, this goes back to over twenty years ago. You were talking about this and how technology was going to to make delivery of these services much much more uh, digital. So, why, in your mind, has it been slower to happen? than many, many of us probably thought it would.
0: Yeah. So you're referring to a report I actually published in the summer of 2000, so 22 years ago already. Yeah. It was called The Atomization of Financial Services. And I predicted a couple of things in that report. One, that the internet would lead to highly specialized financial services firms. Uh, you know, To some extent, the unbundling.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but that the rebundling would happen... By a, a very small number of companies, and that the rebundling would actually be done to some extent by non-financial firms. I wasn't really predicting fintechs doing it as much as I thought, you know, the Home Depots and the mm-hmm. uh, you know large retailers and large merchants would do it. And I think they've been slower to do it than the um than the fintechs. But if you ask about like what's taken so long, I, I think generally speaking, there are Three factors, and by the way, Carrie, these three factors influence the adoption of every technological change.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and there are three things, and if you need an acronym for it, it's TED: technology, economics, and and uh, demographics. So let me do it not in that order, though. The one reason why I think it took a long time or longer is demographic change. I think the reality is, and, and you see this a lot with folks that I would think of as technology optimists, mm-hmm. um, they tend to be folks who think, wow, this technological change is going to transform society and it's going to be all for the better and everything's going to be great. You know, at the other end of the spectrum are obviously the technology pessimists who tend to think, wow, well, this is going to be bad for us. And there's a lot of security and privacy issues, uh, but most of us are actually technology, I don't know, ag- agnostic, I guess. We don't care mm-hmm. one way or another. But the technology optimists almost always overestimate the speed at which technological change is going to hit, and mostly because it's a demographic issue, and especially in the United States, where up until recently, baby boomers have been the the, the predominant uh, largest generation. And reality is, is that when you're 40, 50, 60 years old and you've been doing something for 20, 30, 40 years, you don't change your behavior just because some new G whiz bang technology came around, comes around, even if it's better than what we've got. So there's a demographic barrier Hmm. that older consumers just aren't going to be as uh, adoptive of, of new technology changes. Um, second, I think there was certainly technological issues. Um, back in 2000, this was, I mean we were doing mobile banking on flip phones mm. back then and it, it was not a great experience. <laughs> and so it was still seven years away from the introduction of the iPhone and a good 10 to 12 years before you know that those smartphones truly became uh, more or less ubiquitous, especially among younger consumers. Um, the other aspect of the technology thing is the the APIs and the connectiveness. Uh, there was really no open banking back in two thousand, and that needed some time to develop as well. And the third piece, Carrie, I think is really important here is the economics. I think people overestimate that you know some new technology comes along and it's going to change the world. Where in a world where the economic situation is pretty good management doesn't throw it all away mm-hmm. just because there's something new. So, you know, back in the early 2000s, it was pre, um, you know, before the meltdown of 2007, 2008. So there was not a lot of impetus on the part of either financial institutions or, or non-financial institutions uh, to make a big change. So I think those three factors, the the demographics, the economics, and the technology all kind of combine to have forced this change to take, you know, 15 to 20 years instead of five to 10.
2: Gotcha. Yeah, all all great insights. And I think very instructive as we move forward as well. So as you think about, obviously, demographics are changing. Um, technology is going to continue to change. Although, as, as we sit here right now, there there may not be too many things that seem like they're going to dramatically break through in the next few years. Maybe uh, generative AI is is one of those that, that might. On the economic side, though, if, if I'm a bank and I'm starting both demographically to lose customers that are just aging out or uh, economically losing customers that are finding better products and services somewhere else... Uh, do you think those will be the things that will really drive a lot of adoption in the the coming years? Well, I think that's
0: going to drive a lot of strategic change mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of community banks. You know, one of the things um, I'm fond of saying, and I don't think a lot of community bankers are actually fond of me saying this, is that I think to a large extent, Community as geography is on the decline. Mm -hmm. Community as affinity is on the uprise. Mm -hmm. And so I think kind of, you know, this is why I'm still very bullish on the idea of community banking. Um, But the idea is that how you define your community shifts from a geographic construct to more of an affinity construct Mm -hmm. where, you know, you really got to look at your customer base and say, who is it that we're really good serving? Um, and it may be,, you, you know, yeah, but people in Spring Valley, New York, I don't know what you 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 sure. call it, but there's got to be something about that group that's makes them unique more so than the fact that they all live in the same town. So I, I you know, I do think that um those kind of changes will 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 chip away at community banks, but the you know the the reaction to that is not, gee, we got to go be digital. The reaction to that is we got to figure out who we really serve and and with what services do we serve them.
2: Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I would argue probably that in most cases, that redefinition of a community or defining it in non-geographic terms probably means digital is a predominant part of the service mix.
0: Totally agree. But what I am Kind of concerned about, and and Carrie, for the past couple of years now, I've you know been doing an annual report called "What's Going On in Banking," and looking at you know digital transformation as a trend. You know we're up to the point where eighty percent of community banks say they have a digital transformation strategy or initiative in place, uh, and of the remaining twenty percent, half of them say they'll have one by the end of twenty twenty three. And my big concern is that they're digitizing for the sake of digitizing. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, instead of saying, wait, there's a business opportunity, we've got to be more, you know, specific about our strategy. And yes, to your point, the way to address the opportunities is not going to be by building new branches 300 miles away from, from headquarters, but by expanding our digital capabilities to reach new customer segments, reach new partners, whatever it might be. Um, but I'm a, I'm fearful that too many banks are putting digital first and not strategy first.
2: Mm, I, there's so much gold right there, Ron. I could not agree more. It's funny. Uh, I, I grew up in a small town in Indiana and my family's been involved in a bank there for over a hundred years called the Farmer's Bank. And to me, in a community is affinity, I look at that and say, hey, maybe literally you should be redefining your strategy to use your name uh, because there isn't a geography in that name. There is there is absolutely an affinity group in that name. And that could be, to your point, a strategy that then digital is likely to follow. Um, so I, I hope more banks really take heed of that suggestion from you, because it should be that strategy is driving all of these uh, you know, uh, investments and changes that are happening, and that that'll also really help them change the cultures that they are likely to need to adjust uh, to reflect those new opportunities.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. You know, Carrie, one of the things that worries me as I look at the digital transformation survey data, is I ask, you know, so what kind of initiatives are at the top of your list for your digital transformation strategy? In past couple of years, one of the more popular initiatives is digital account opening. Yes. And I'm like, oh, for Christ's sakes, just get it done. You know, it's, it, it's, this is not, not transformation. That's just basic blocking and tackling, get the damn job done. You know, your transformation needs to be, uh, I, I think, much more Bigger in scope and scale than a simple, you know, system application type of thing. And by the way, we'll talk about partnerships in a bit too, I'm sure. But that's another one where ask, you know, what do, what's at the top of your list of your partnership strategies? Um, and many say, you know, digital account opening. I'm like, oh, for Christ's sakes, that's a vendor decision. Just make the decision, that's get right. it done, move on.
2: Well, and I feel like that that's probably also one of the challenges that a lot of traditional community banks are facing, which is what is table stakes? That's table stakes. As you and I would both say, what's table stakes keeps moving. And if they can't even keep up with the the table stakes capabilities, then for them to feel like they can go lean into a really winning strategy is probably daunting. Agreed. So let's go back to I would say we both would probably say a bright spot for community banking. So early days of COVID, which incredibly now is almost 3 years ago, uh community banks were called upon with PPP to really serve their communities. And I would say in most cases those were geographic communities, but they were called upon uh and they went way above and beyond. They they effectively did double their market share of PPP volume. And to me, that was a bright spot. That was them showing in a time of need, they could pivot, they could serve, and they could actually deliver. And did that do anything in your mind to change your thought on what community banks might be capable of?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I you know, I think the biggest impact of that, Terry, was... Um, the acceleration of digital adoption, both from a consumer and business perspective. And I think on the bank side, what it did was kind of hit them upside the head that wait, this, we can be successfully productively interacting, especially with our business clients, even more so than the consumer clients, Mm -hmm. um, through digital, digital channels, uh, I think, you know, for, for many banks um, they have relied, you know, community banks have, uh, well, you know, look, let's take a step back. Um, I don't know the number, but it feels to me like it's a 50 50 shot, whether or not a community bank is really committed to the consumer market or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them just see it, you know, their business as uh commercial lending and even more narrowly commercial real estate lending. And so the pandemic, even more so than the PPP, <laughs> excuse me, you know, really challenged the notion that a community bank is going to thrive and survive strictly through commercial real estate lending. Uh, so it made them go downstream to you know the CNI um, and more downstream from you know larger mid or mid-sized small businesses to the smaller small businesses, but I still don't mean the mom and pops.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I think it. You know, it kind of refocused the community banks on the commercial market, on, you know, the small to mid-sized businesses and their non-real estate lending opportunities, um, a lot of which, you know, up until 2020, uh, for the prior years leading up to that, um, you know, had really been more and more being captured by a lot of the fintechs mm-hmm. um, and and not successfully. You know, you look at the satisfaction levels with uh, a lot of small businesses with their fintech small business lenders. Not good. Yeah, yes. they they got a quick loan, but they got no support from a business perspective. They got no ongoing service from them. Um, and so, I think you know more so than the PPP stuff, uh, I think the pandemic really opened up the um, community banker's eyes to the to the small business. But again, let's put some boundaries on that. I don't mean, you know, sub one hundred and fifty, sub $100,000 in revenue, but, you know, even $1 million up or even maybe $5 million and up. Um, and I think that market today is is still ripe for the, the, the real opportunities for growth for, for a lot of mid-sized
2: community banks. <laughs> I totally, totally agree. Do you feel like once PPP sort of wound down though that most bankers kind of went back to business as usual or do you feel like there was a a, a catalyst for change and that many have built upon that
0: um i think some did i, I i'm not i'd be hard pressed to say what percentage did it sure uh, i don't think it's that prevalent but, but i also not sure it's at the other end of the spectrum where it's you know that few But uh, I I think there are certainly a lot of banks that didn't have sort of the business structure and the follow through to capitalize on those opportunities um, that got presented to them, you know, with a bunch of businesses coming to them for loans Mm -hmm. and not having really the business services, the, the, the organizational structure in place to say, okay, good. Now let's get into cash management treasury yeah. management small business banking let's you know let's get into other types of lending uh you know merchant you know merchant cash advances factoring that kind of stuff i, I don't think they kind of had the 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 capabilities to to capitalize on that uh, many of them but i'd be hard pressed to to say you know it was 20% who did sure. and 80% who didn't or 50-50 or the other way around
2: yeah. I think it's a it's a great point. Um, it's, it's probably more of a sentiment that we both feel and just the number of banks that we uh, interface or talk to uh, week in and, and week out. Um, but my my sense is they didn't propel forward up, 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 like like you indicated. And you know, I've I've talked to several who they conquested a number of businesses during that era only to then lose them back because they didn't add in those other services that those companies had come to expect from their banks.
0: Yeah. Carrie, here's what I I think is at the root of the problem. And I tell you, I was at a conference earlier this year, uh, sitting on a panel talking about small business banking. And the moderator of the panel starts off by talking, oh, there's you know, 60 million small businesses in the United States. It's such a huge opportunity for banking. And I'm like, mm-hmm. stop. It doesn't matter that there are 60 million or 6 million or whatever the number yep. is, especially when you consider that 55 out of that 60 million are, you know, mom and not even mom and pop. It's mom or pop. Um, single side hustles. Person, <laughs> yeah. yeah, side hustle kind of stuff. So take them off the table. Secondly, of the... 5 million or 10 million, or whatever it might be, that are truly ongoing businesses, um, you have to create some sort of segmentation around mm-hmm. it. You know, everybody loves to hold out Square, and I do too, as a great example of uh, a company that has truly provided a, a broad range of services to its small business customers that encompasses, you know, services like accounting and payroll, as well as. Uh, payment and banking and lending, but remember that they're predominantly going after retailers and merchants, mm-hmm. and that's not the whole market. So I think that banks that are not that are looking at small business is looking at the wrong thing. They ought to be looking at segment segments of the small business to mid-sized market. And again, who do they serve well? You know, if you're out in right midland texas you're probably serving oil and gas industry Mm -hmm. so you don't care if it's a small business you care whether or not it's in the oil and gas industry because that's what you're good at serving problem is for most community banks they're in generic communities um but still have just like you have to figure out your segmentation on the consumer side You've got to figure out your segmentation on the business side. And I think too many get caught up in this idea that, well, small businesses, you know, they're they're not good risk. We don't want to take them wrong. It's what is the industry segments you're going to go after and find the right companies uh, who you can serve best across a range of services, you know, both on the the banking as well as on the lending side.
2: It all makes a ton of sense. I mean, some of that probably goes back to some of the, branch banking legacy, which was anybody that walks through the door, we're going to try to help if we can. And I think that's a very different view than what you're asserting, which is define who your ideal is and then go out take it to them. It's yeah. that you know, to me that that's the biggest change is don't expect uh, your customer to come to you like I said earlier, you know they're not getting off the couch um go to them with a value proposition that is very distinctive for you to serve them in ways they're not going to see from others.
0: Yeah. And and Carrie, this is this is where your the opportunity of banking as a service comes in. Mm-hmm. Because it is about using your banking as a service is going out versus mm-hmm. waiting for them to come in. And, you know, you think a lot, a lot of businesses use software or applications that are specific to their industry, mm-hmm. uh, you know, vertical market, SaaS, so- software as a service applications. So, you know, if you're a veterinarian, you've got a veterinarian management. If you're a phys- doctor, you've got a physician management. If you're an insurance practice, you've got an insurance. I mean, every industry. I mean, I get yep. emails from, from something called, I think it's called like vigara.com when I schedule ha- haircuts, which... Are as frequent as as I needed to be, but there's always you know some email telling me, um, uh, you know, you have an appointment. It's there. Even sure. the 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 beauty parlors are using beauty parlor management systems, mm-hmm. and they, these are distribution channel opportunities for banks to reach the segments they want to reach through the, those systems because those systems are being used on a daily basis by the, by those businesses. You know, it's funny, I. I had projected um, that by 2025, 2026, there'd be 300 banks in the U.S. pursuing bass strategies because uh, I was trying to estimate what the total sure. you know, market opportunity was. Uh, a week or two ago, I went to LinkedIn and I said, well, here's my projection. And, and by the way, when I was out at an ICBA conference uh, earlier this month, or whatever you it might be last month, depending on when you uh, you actually run this. I ran into two CEOs of banks who are pursuing BAS strategies. And they said, oh gosh, no, it's not going to be anywhere near 300. It'll be closer to 100 and maybe not even as much. So I posted on LinkedIn recently and said, so what do you all think? You know, Is it 100 or is it 300? And most people uh, were like, oh, it's not even going to be 100. It's It's not going to be there. And Carrie, I got to tell you, I think they're wrong. I think there's an opportunity for hundreds of banks yes. to pursue a BAS strategy, not through partnering with consumer-focused fintechs, but by partnering with vertical market, either applications or providers. It could even be through uh, associations. I, I think there's opportunity, big opportunity for, for hundreds of banks to do this. Um, and I think a lot of people are just looking at the opportunity way too narrowly.
2: I totally, totally agree. And I think the definition is what people struggle with is they just they look at it either too narrowly, too literally, or too what's right in front of them, what they've seen happen so far. Uh, you know, the interesting thing, Ron, you know, having built a couple fintechs that partnered with banks myself. Um, in both cases, we partnered with banks that were getting into the business for the first time. And I think my advice to a lot of entrepreneurs right now, if they're if they have identified a banking as a service idea, that they should probably be going to a bank who wants to get into this versus one who has made it a significant part of their, bank because you create a partnership and a, a mutual interest that's just higher than it's starting to be another almost vendor like relationship.
0: Yeah, and, and I agree. Th- I think the funny part about the though carry is I, I think to a certain extent they may have to go to a bank first getting into it yeah. because a bunch of the CEOs that I've been talking to are saying we're turning away business. Because sure. they're they're at max capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, for what they can deliver. So, I mean, they're actually getting really picky uh, right. and turning away business. So that that fintech or non-fintech, non-financial firm getting into the space um, may have no choice but to, to right. get, in, get in, 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 in partnership with a bank first starting out on it. And I think as a result of 2022, Carrie, I think uh, the lesson learned for a lot of these banks is um, this isn't this isn't a hang the shingle out or a Bass Bank and they're gonna come running it's uh shit, we gotta build some capabilities here.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, good stuff. Well, let's let's go to sort of a tangential question that I I ponder a lot. So I uh, you're talking about vertical market software companies. And you know, I I talk a lot, and it's not just about banking. This is just a it's sort of a concept I've used a lot over my years, but this idea about Thinking about your business as a different type of business and then what you might be able to learn, characteristics, operating approaches, et cetera, going through that exercise. So if you, instead of thinking about yourself as a bank, uh, maybe you should think of yourself as a software company or as a IT reseller, Uh, what type of businesses do you think banks might best learn from if they reframed the type of business they were today.
0: All right. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, but before you jump down my throat, hear me sure. out. On okay. This,
2: okay. All right.
0: Because because everybody's first reaction is going to be, oh God, no, what are you smoking? What are you crazy? <laughs> um, healthcare companies. Mm-hmm. And here's why. Now look, there, granted, there is a lot wrong with the healthcare industry. There is. Uh, it, it's probably yes. more screwed up than the financial services industry is. I and would tend fact, to agree. As a tangential statement, you know, if Elizabeth Warren would spend half of the time she spends berating banks on uh, going after healthcare, she could really make a huge impact and difference in this country. Um, so there's my little political comment. Okay. You can take that out if you want afterwards. But here's <laughs> here's why I say healthcare and why I think. You know, thinking about this from a finan- from a banking or financial services perspective could be valuable. Uh, in the past twenty, maybe twenty five years, maybe fifteen at the least, healthcare industry has undergone a shift. Not in the payments or the economics piece of it, but in terms of outcome management, mm-hmm. they define things around what is the outcome health-related outcomes. And this goes back, Carrie, to our very original point about financial products. When you're worried about financial products, you're worried about, well, what features and functions and what is the user interface and how is the experience of uh, you know, our customers in using our product? But that shields you from thinking about how is it impacting mm-hmm. their financial lives their financial health their financial performance what's the outcome mm-hmm. and i think healthcare industry has done a good job in the past 20 25 years of defining outcomes and managing towards outcomes and i don't see that almost at all in in financial services i i think there are some you know uh, some uh, you know limited uh, examples both from a community bank as well as credit union perspective um, in terms of companies that are thinking about it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would really encourage people to take a look at what financial health or, Health networks out of Chicago does sure. uh, around measuring financial health, because I think those are very outcome-based. But uh, I think kind of thinking about financial health the way the healthcare industry thinks about physical and by the way, mental health as well from an outcomes perspective uh, could do a a bank a a lot of good.
2: Oh, I I love this, Ron. And I mean, to your point, very, very nascent as a concept, but if you really are going to take that idea into banking as a service, now you're talking about going to a, a partner, a channel, Uh, an in-customer base where you're truly adding value. You're you're thinking about their business success as your driver of your success and you're deriving yours off of theirs. I I think that alignment is incredible. Uh, Well, think about this also- Super exciting to think about.
0: Think about this also from a threat perspective. Um, If there's an organization, a provider that I use- who does a great job at helping me manage my physical and my mental health, and then comes along and says, by the way, we can help you manage your financial health. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, sure, won't give you a shot at that, because they're thinking more holistically about me. And I don't I think that's a big problem in the banking world, is that there, there are plenty of banks who say, Yeah, we're really concerned with financial health, but they're missing the fact that there's this tight connection between financial, physical, and, excuse me, and mental health.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the providers that are focused on all three, I think have a big opportunity to steal business from those that are only focused on one of the three.
2: Hmm. Very interesting to think about. I we, we will definitely have future conversations about that topic. So I like it and I am going to... Uh, Support your your view there, and uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to see if if anyone really uh, picks up and and runs with that one. Let's let's shift a little bit. Let's talk about bank boards. Um, I I've had the opportunity to uh, meet with and and zoom into a whole bunch of of bank board meetings over the last year as we were getting uh, bank tech ventures launched. It, it seems like to me that they can be a big part of both the problem in some cases in holding a bank back, but also uh, to the extent they see these really interesting opportunities, uh, they can also be a big part of the solution. How, how are you thinking about or what, what are you seeing with with bank boards?
0: Uh, first of all, I love doing bank board presentations um, because boy, I'm going to, I guess, insult a lot of bankers with this. <laughs> um, I think the board's, the good boards tend to ask better questions than the management mm. teams do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, these are folks who are generally, you know, either business owners, entrepreneurs themselves, or established in the community, you know, running decent sized organizations. So they kind of get it, um, you, you know, in terms of running and the, the banks, typically a, you know, the community bank is typically a much smaller organization that that they you know mm-hmm. than the ones that they have run um so i'll tell you what i what i have seen what i haven't seen which is good i haven't seen gratuitous inclusion of millennials on on boards um i think this might have been something more prevalent in the community in the credit union world rather mm-hmm. where it was like oh we have to we have to have a board that's representative of of our member or customer base.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and I think that's absolute nonsense. Um, you, you've got to have just smart people on the board. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't matter. You know, it's it's good to pick the board members who bring some some specific aspect to the table, whether it's an entrepreneur who starts something or you know, maybe a technology person. And I'm I'm not even convinced, you know, that a lot of a lot of the pundits love to say, oh, only 10% of board members have any technology experience. I don't care. They have. They still run and, and use technology in their own businesses and manage mm-hmm. it. I think I'd rather have the generalist who thinks about the business more holistically than the technologist who can't get out of the technology. Mm-hmm. You can always hire a consultant to, to advise you on the technology. Mm-hmm. So um, I... You know, to your point about the boards holding some banks back, uh, I think that's certainly a problem in some number of banks because the bank board culture tends to be one of we have to protect the bank.
1: Mm. You
0: know, it's too risk management oriented. Um, I've seen some banks where they, um, you know, love to pat themselves on the back at the bank board level you know for a 0% loss ratio you mm-hmm. know th- that kind of mentality um but i have to tell you and it's probably one of um you know not uh, what would be the uh, the uh, what would be the uh, the um the opposite of adverse selection positive selection yeah. you know that i get asked to speak at the bank board meetings where they're tenor, I think they tend to be more you know technology oriented not risk averse, future not, leaning. You know, yes, future leaning. So, ah, uh, you know, I, I love those bank boards, and I think it's important for the CEOs. You know, and I, and I'm probably not telling anybody anything. They don't feel the pain of, but you know, it, it, there's tends to be one or two board members who just the are the thorn in the side of the CEO. Um, the other last point I'd make um that i think is the is negative of, of some bank boards that i see is where um it's generally the board chair who dominates the discussion mm-hmm. and i think that's a bad sign i can pick up on that almost you see a lot of other board members deferring mm-hmm. looking over is it okay for me to talk now kind of a thing um and i generally think that the the board meetings i go into where i can't I wouldn't be able to tell who the board chair was if I didn't already know who it was. Mm. Uh, are the are the better boards?
2: That's probably the sign of a super healthy board. That's right. Yeah, uh, I think uh, great great insights there. Okay, I'm going to wave my uh, podcast host magic wand, Ron, and I am newly installing you as CEO of a community bank, and uh, your community bank has that board that is very healthy and it's not clear who the the chairman is but what what are you going to initially focus on in in this bank
0: uh initially gonna focus on well first of all you're gonna get fired from whatever job you have for making me the ceo um (laughs) because i think uh with more than 30 years of experience it's pretty clear that i can't manage anything (laughs) i can't even freaking manage myself so uh that's why i'm never going to be ceo of anything uh, but it, to play along with your scenario um the first thing i want to assess coming into community bank is um strategic alignment uh, and strate- strategic clarity and focus um if this is a, a community bank where it's yeah you know the the 25 mile you know circle around the mm-hmm. headquarters is our market uh i'm worried mm-hmm. um and i want to then start to look at Really understanding when we win business, why are we winning it? Who are we winning it from? When we're losing business, why are we losing business? And number three, where should we be focused on getting our future business from And that's going to be very dependent on the answers to the first two questions. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I bet you there are experts, pundits, influencers, whatever, Carrie, that would answer that question and and immediately go to, uh, we got to accelerate our digital transformation and all that kind of blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, if you're doing that before you've achieved strategic clarity and alignment, you got people that are going to be running in every different direction, and that's going to tear the company apart. Uh, so number one, I think, is really, really understanding to what extent is there true and good strategic clarity and and alignment within the business. Because if that's not there, it doesn't matter what initiatives you put in place. Mm-hmm. It's going to go in different directions.
2: That's so good. And I feel like just such a great roadmap for um, even existing management teams to Consider and and adopt uh, as as we're entering a new year because I mean to me that that is the the imperative no time like the present right redefine why do we exist and and who do we best serve
0: you know I don't get I love doing the bank board meetings Carrie but excuse me I try to stay away from the strategic planning meetings. Because one of the things that just absolutely drives me nuts about bank strategic planning, well, there's two things that drive me nuts. Number one is when it's the CFO driven and it becomes nothing more than a budgeting exercise. Mm-hmm. But number two, when it, even when it is more strategic, it tends to be very sort of blue ocean, green field oriented, as if nothing ever happened in the past. Now let's go define our future. Mm-hmm. And I truly think that the right way to start is by looking back. Mm -hmm. And understanding why have we succeeded and why have we failed and where in the past couple of years, Um, because it's not, it's never a greenfield, blue ocean opportunity. Um, So I, I don't think enough. Uh, and I'm probably going to get a lot of grief, just if my own colleagues who do strategic planning. Is like Ron, <laughs> shut up. Let's not how we do it here, you know. Um, so screw them. They can get on their own podcasts and, and right. say what That's they right. want,
2: you know. Well, I appreciate the the candor and the honesty, and I think it's this is the uh, the input that people need. They need to hear this that there there is a uh, a level strategy, but there's a level of pragmatism required to discuss it plan it and then execute it what you're describing is a very doable strategy it should be that's right and for for 95% 99% of banks that is the best step forward for them Good. well we talked Uh, A little bit earlier about your presentation and, you know, you you, that I I got to sit in on earlier this year where you talked about this collaborative future between banks and fintechs. And we've talked a little bit about banking as a service and that uh, partnership is one way to do it. What do you feel like has held back more productive partnerships in those between those two types of companies?
0: Um would probably point to two things immediately. One we just discussed is lack of strategic clarity. Mm-hmm. If you don't know what you want, then any partnership. Sure. You, you, I know, um, I think we have a common friend in Jason Henricks from mm-hmm. the Alloy Labs, and always give him credit for this. He defined that term, the fintech petting zoo. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, yeah, look, here's a fintech. Go ahead, you can touch it, it won't bite. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of banks have gotten into partnerships with that kind of mentality that, ooh, you know, FOMO. We we better get on the board here and you know and mm-hmm. and, and, and get a partnership going, um, and so it leads them to do what a partnership around digital account opening, again it, a basic capability. Um, so I think that's one aspect to it. But the other aspect, and this is what I was really trying to get at in in the presentation, Carrie, is that partnership is a business competency.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, to partner requires you to identify potential partners vet them in terms of both you know how good they are at what they do and the fit with your own organization um you've got to uh, negotiate you've got to deploy and you've got to scale and when i look at the resource allocation uh that banks in the 1 to 10 billion dollar asset range put towards partnerships they average two full time equivalent people dedicated mm. to fintech partnerships number 1 you are not building a competency by taking janie and johnny out of it and making them your partnership mm. people number 2 you are not going to negotiate uh, identify vet negotiate deploy and scale more than one or two at the most partnerships in any given year with two people sure. so it's a resource commitment problem um you know you talk to the bank, the bank, the banks who are who've been pursuing a bass strategy for the past three, four, five years. and what they'll tell you is they basically created new business units. Mm-hmm. they staffed them. they put the money. It's the same thing here, Carrie. It's just a it's still a business unit. You've got as a bank to be putting resources, dedicated resources behind this as if it were a new business opportunity community um. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the chief fill-in-the-blank officer position, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: but there's a reason for doing it. There's a reason why companies needed a chief data officer, why they needed a chief fill-in-the-blank officer, because you need to create a competency, and then it gets inculcated or dispersed into the organization. And so I hate to say it, but having maybe a chief partnership officer to building a collaborative capability and a, an ability to partner. Um, and it's not a temporary thing. Uh, you know, another thing I loved, and I don't even think I put this in the Vincent presentation, um, is that, you know, the old dichotomy was build versus buy. Mm-hmm. That is not a dichotomy anymore. Today, it's it's build and buy and partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and pretty much anything you are going to do as a mid-sized community bank um, is going to involve parties from outside of your organization whether it's a quote partnership or whether it's working with your vendors these are still third parties and you know figuring out how to better work and collaborate with parties outside of the four your own four walls I think is rapidly becoming a a, a needed competency in Banks that requires a lot of resource commitment and that's what I think is slowing a lot of banks down is they simply don't look at it as a a competency that they have to build. They look at it as a one-off project.
2: Hmm. Super interesting to to think more about that, Ron. I mean, I I even could go as far as to say a bank that really does partnership well is probably going to work with their customers better if that becomes a cultural part of their organization, that they start to think of and proactively think of their biggest and best customers as partners.
0: Yeah, I agree with that.
2: Yeah. So partnership as a capability will be a, probably a key theme for 2023. Um, along those lines, we're, we're right here at the precipice of a new year. What are your key themes as you think about Banking in 2023 and what you think the, some of the highlights are are likely to be.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that because I'm I'm in the middle of writing the uh the 2023 what's going on in banking.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: what I'm kind of settling in on as sort of a theme is managing the headwinds, riding the tailwinds. Mm. Um, I you know, economic situation is gonna present a lot of headwinds for mm-hmm. 2023. Uh, especially from a lending perspective, from a spending and payments perspective, um, and then the regulatory environment is going to be a freaking major pain in the in the butt for banks in 2023. Um, uh, it was funny one one uh, respondent to my survey when I asked anything else you want to get off your chest, like given like an open ended <laughs> question. Uh, and this banker's comment was, can somebody please shut the CFPB the hell up? You know, <laughs> so loved that comment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did get quoted about anonymously in the report. So, um, but the other thing is that I think there's a bunch of tailwinds that are there as well, creating positive change from a technology development perspective. You know, a lot of cool stuff from an AI perspective, a lot of cool stuff from chatbots and even you know, blockchain. Um you know, cloud, API, open banking stuff. I think these all create new opportunities and tailwinds. So Mm -hmm. I I think the challenge in 2023 for a lot of banks is how do you manage the headwinds and ride the tailwinds?
2: Okay, great. I I like that as a, uh, as a headline. That's, that's really good. Well, and, and along those same lines, we have a new year ahead of us. Any, I'm curious, any personal, rituals or approaches you take uh, as you end a new year and start or end a year and start a, a new one
0: yeah it's that time of the year where i start uh working on my um igg uh let's see uh well whatever 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 the acronym is it's the the annual time for my annual i got to get my shit together for the for next year <laughs> um uh resolution um You know, uh, it's not that I don't have my shit together as much. It's that um, I absolutely do a horrible job of time management. And every Mm -hmm. year I'm like, okay, that's the shit I got to get together is, you know, managing my time better. Um, And I think if any of my colleagues hear this, they'll be like, yeah, could you please do that for our (laughs) sake? Uh, Because you're making our lives, you know, miserable by you not managing your. So, uh, you know, that's what I'm, I'm kind of focused on.
2: Okay, well, it's, it's as I say, recognition is the first step, right? So, uh, we'll 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 I'll check in with you uh, I- as we get along in the year a little bit. Well, I guess you know last couple questions here. Um, as you think about innovation and change in banks, we've talked about strategy should be driving this. This isn't uh, online account opening is not digital transformation. But if you think about the couple. Innovation or change items that you feel like should be at the top of banks' lists for this new year. Any couple items that you know in, in your actionable way that you you tend to be able to dispel your wisdom.
0: Uh, number one on my list, Carrie, would be conversational AI technologies. Mm. Um, I did publish a report recently called "The Chatbot Journey." Mm-hmm. And I, over the past two years, have become very convinced that conversational AI technologies will become um, core technologies to, for, for banks. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to have this. Um, and the journey kind of relates to the reality that, and this was a bit of a learning curve for me, um, I was never a big fan of the term intelligent digital assistance because I thought mm-hmm. it was just so hoity-toity and, you know, Um, But there really is a difference between a chatbot and a thing that we call an intelligent digital assistant Mm -hmm. in terms of the complexity of the technology and underlying capabilities. Um, And I think banks have really got to do this, not so much simply for diverting easy questions from the call center, but for using it to support a lot of different business processes, especially internal Mm. um it's just as important because these technologies are, aren't just sort of answering easy questions from customers they're answer they're they're fielding all of the questions and being able to understand what well, what kind of questions are we getting what kind of questions are we able to answer what's the resolution of these questions what's the output and the 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 impact of doing all of this is something that we can't do as, as humans um, and I think this whole thing in the past couple months with chat GPT, mm-hmm. um, which has been a really cool toy to play with. Yes. But man, I tell you some of the things people are doing with this is incredibly sophisticated. And I think being able to better kind of integrate machine learning, conversational AI technologies uh, is something that, you know, from an innovation perspective. And, and again, I, I would tell banks, stop using terms like innovation. It doesn't matter Because then it it sets a bar internally that, you know, somebody who's got like a good idea for something be like, yeah, but it's kind of minor. So it isn't really innovation. It's like, yes, it is. And and so getting away from that kind of thing, I I think, is important. uh, And that would be at the top, you know, one of the things at the top of my list uh, from an innovation perspective for community banks going forward.
2: Well, thank you. I think that's a, a great one, and, and particularly, you know, as you reference Chat GPT, I think we're just going to see increased uh, validity and uh, usefulness from it as well. It's pretty pretty incredible to see how quickly that's changing. Uh, last question, and I think somewhat along these same lines of what we were just talking about, you know, we we both have kids. Um, they're young adults. They're they're really, you know, thinking about what they're going to be as they start to develop in their careers. I'm curious. Do you advise yours, given how much time you've spent in the financial service industry? Do you advise yours to even consider careers in financial service? It, it, it's uh, it's an interesting time in that industry.
0: Well, I think two of my three kids have got there without me either uh, fostering it or, mm-hmm. or not. Uh, my oldest ma- ma- majored in healthcare management at, at UConn ended up, and that was more, you know, health insurance management mm-hmm. than it was mm-hmm. hospital type management. So she ended up at a, one of the big consulting firms doing healthcare consulting. Um, and then the middle one majored in statistics and ended up at uh, one of the big, uh, insurance firms in Hartford and then moved to, uh, the private equity group within the investment management. And as we speak, Carrie, she's at day one of a new job at a at a um, PE firm here yeah. in the Boston area. Um, my youngest just graduated, but she did an internship at an insurance company. So, uh, oh, and by the way, my son-in-law works on Wall Street. So um, <laughs> I got them all in financial services one way or another, regardless of, of what I told him. All I ever say to them is, do what you want, but
2: be the best at what you do. It's awesome. Well, any advice you have for community banks to attract young, smart, digital natives like your your kids? Yeah, I do.
0: I think there's a. I think a lot of community banks have missed the opportunity over the past couple of years to to tell the right story. Hmm. They let the fintechs come in and go, "Oh, we're all about helping people and you know helping inclusion and all." And it was. It wasn't a lie. It was just wrong. That wasn't what they were about by any stretch of the imagination. And yet what the community banks really do, they, they help people in the community or their mm-hmm. community, whatever it might be. Um, I think there's another lesson that a lot of young people are learning today is that, yeah, you can go get a really high paying job at a big tech company and that job might you know last six months or nine months before they fire you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, you can I think the community banks can pay less um and still get really high quality folks by getting the people who want to learn an industry, really do want to help people, want the culture that a a community bank can provide. Um and so I've been encouraging my younger one to apply to a lot of community banks for for jobs, even though it will probably pay less in the in the shorter term. But um you know, provide a much better experience and learning of the the industry. Uh, I think you know, young. I think new college graduates going into consulting is crazy, and mm. I did that. I did it myself. You mm. know, it took me a long time to get into an industry and learn it. Uh, I think it's a lot better way to go is learning and you know, get into an industry, then you can go become a consultant. But um, I think the community banks have to tell the story better that they're really there helping the community, and and I think that resonates with a lot of young people.
2: Well, Ron, thank you so much um, for joining for the conversation. I knew it would be fun and and lively, uh, and it was. Uh, I really just have, have greatly enjoyed getting to know you over the last year, and and look forward to the continued collaboration that I know we will have.
0: Thanks, Gary. Thanks a lot for having me. I look forward to doing this again next year at this time. You can tell me all the things I got wrong.
2: Love it. Really excited for 2023, and happy New Year to you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.